Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's climate tech revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Bernot, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show, and we won't shy away from spikes, secrets, and contrarian views. To make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights, you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Welcome back, guys, to Climate Insiders. Today, we have Irena Spadzapan. She's the managing partner at Systemic Capital, a London-based climate tech fund and spin-off of Systemic Limited. Systemic Limited is an advisory and investment firm focused on climate. They help build companies that have the potential to meaningfully accelerate the transition towards net zero. They've been around for many years. They have 400 employees. They are a big brand in this whole sustainability and climate ecosystem. Irena worked at Goldman Sachs for 13 years in commodities, gas, and power systems. She knows the technicality of this whole space, and she's as sharp as a knife and doesn't beat around the bush. She has strong opinions, and like to say, things just as they are. I love conversations with her, especially on certain verticals. You're always up for a ride and learn a ton of on macro trends, the psychology of the investor, the differences between the US and Europe, and where the world is headed. So without any further ado, let's jump right into it. Irena, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Climate Insiders. Thank you, Jan. I'm very much looking forward to the chat uh, and spending the next half an hour together. Fun little anecdote to get started. You not only own one, not two, but four passports. Where are you actually from, Irena, and where do you call home? So home is definitely London. I've been in and out of London for the past 20 years. I've now spent most of my life here, but it's not been a constant 20 years in London. We spent a few stinches in the Middle East. And so it's been very much sort of citizen of the world. I grew up in the north of Italy, but in a sort of ethnic minority. So, you know, when you go to school and everything is bilingual. So that's the sort of northeastern side of Italy where it's Italian and Slovene. But my dad's family had to, I guess, escape communism after the war and fled to Argentina, which is where he grew up. And so that's my fourth, in a way, country. He came back, but most of his family remains in Buenos Aires. And so that's been an interesting upbringing, which is very complicated with my children, as you can imagine. <laughs> I imagine. So that's Slovenian, Italian, British Argentinian, and, Argentinian. and British. Wow, what a mix. Could you, as we are going uh, to cover systemic capital, briefly describe what the fund size is, your geography and ticket size for those that don't know you? Yeah, absolutely. So systemic capital, you know, I can tell you more later about, you know, sort of the genesis of all that. But we span out about this year, so it's relatively recent, out of the systemic advisory side, which is by now the world's largest climate pure play company, which in turn spun out of McKinsey just after the Paris Agreement six, seven years ago. So we are at Fund 2. Fund 1 was a sort of pilot fund, smaller pilot fund, where we invested into 19 great companies and exited three. Fund 2 will be at just over 100 million by end of year, and then we'll do a final closing sort of towards 200 million target by May. 2023. If everything goes well. If everything goes well. But it's been, you know, I think obviously fundraising is never easy, but I think our story does resonate. So we've been able to launch in July and we're just about to execute the second sort of closing in the next few weeks. You know, it's been fascinating to actually see that the story resonates and there is a huge amount of interest, right, for climate, especially the early stage of climate out there. Absolutely. Can you tell us about what makes Systemic, the mother company, the advisory side, so special and, and the platform that you've built over the years to support startups? 
startups. Yeah. So we invest in Series A and B. So we're not a seed investor. Equally, we're not a growth equity investor. And the reason Series A, B for us makes more sense is because that's when you have an MVP, you have something that you can take and really sort of make the right connections to the top CEOs of the companies who then can then become the users, but also to the policy side of things or to the civil society of things, right? Because having a broader platform to tell the story for a startup is really, really important. Systemic is a very special company. If you go on the website, you will be incredibly puzzled that nobody understands what Systemic actually does because it's a mix of different things. But I think, you know, we try internally, we try to talk, we are a system change firm, right? We mm -hmm. system change, not in the sense that we want to overturn the capitalist system, but system change in the sense that to get two degrees, you know, I guess 1.5 is out of reach by now. If you've seen the latest UN report overnight, it's very scary yeah. again. But let's say I think we can still get two degrees, right? Then to do that, the traditional approach where, you know, the tech side is there, speaks with them and, you know, have the corporates and the policy. You have to bring all these pillars together. And that's what Systemic is, right? So the advisory side is now about 400 people, offices all over the world, is growing very fast. And they advise the um, CEOs of sort of the large companies, but the large companies that have a problem, right? Not the large companies that are already green, but also the sort of prime minister and ministers in the countries that matter to the transition. And then there's a whole sort of more sort of philanthropic NGO world. And then on top of that, Systemic also has operational roles, right? So there's a bunch of projects we have around the global staff, right? So Brazil and Indonesia in particular, around recycling, around sort of sustainable sourcing of commodities and so on and so forth. When something becomes too big within Systemic, it then spins out. So Systemic okay. Capital was the fourth spin out. I have done two spin outs before Systemic Capital and they were both in the methane space, which is mm -hmm. something very dear to me. And we've just done the fifth spin out right now, which is a carbon offset developer. And there will be more, right? Because it's just, it's this incredible entrepreneurial place where people come and you know, sort of come and aim for the highest possible goals in terms of accelerating the climate goals, right? And that leads you to all sorts of directions. And so as the spin out came out, it really got started by a founding team of three. There's Paul Pullman, who's the led consumer goods at Unilever, also played an important role to draft the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There's Jeremy as well, Oppenheim, who is a former World Bank economist, and there's yourself. Yes. Who is a former Goldman Sachs commodities expert. Yes, gas and power. I'm going to poke a little bit, and you probably get those kind of questions all the time with fundraising, so we might as well use each other as sparing partner. With the utmost respect and humility for your brilliant careers in the corporate world, I would say your profiles don't exactly come from the world of startups. So is that a problem or, on the contrary, an advantage? So the team is much broader than this, right? We're a team of 10 people. I come from a gas and power background, which is very much real assets, right? So I used to know like all the power plants in Europe by heart and exactly how they are powered and then put all sorts of acquisitions around that or sort of supply them with gas and so on and so forth. So the real assets exposure, I think if you do climate is fundamental because to think that climate is just like a bunch of software, you're never going to get to two degrees, right? But Mike, that we have an other, another investment partner who is from M12. He joined us a little bit later. So it's going to be public in the next few weeks. And Matt comes from M12, which is Microsoft Venture Fund. And so he's been in VC for the past 12 years. And we then have another team of sort of four people on the investment side who equally are a mix of investors and operators, right? So I think what makes us special is that we have this very special mix about people that come from different backgrounds. And that's what you need in climate, right? Because climate is a system issue. It's not just like, you know, seeking a bunch of companies and then building a nice green story about that, right? You have to start from the top and then picking investments that are going to have the highest return and the highest impact to decarbonize a particular sector. So bringing it all together 
has really worked well for us, right? And Fund One has done really well. And I think that that diversity of view is certainly something that, you know, makes it incredibly fun because you you always learn a ton from people who have very different backgrounds than you. So let, let's talk about Fund One. What, what are the key learnings, upsides and downsides that you learned that are critical that you could share? Well, it's going to sound very cliche, right? But I think what, you know, you learn on and on again, right? That really there's only two things that matter. How big is the TAM? And often we invest in companies where the TAM does not exist yet, right? So you have to imagine the future TAM. TAM, total addressable market. Yeah. And then team. These are the only two things that matter. And I think the mistakes that we've certainly done in Fund One, and we have to get better and better at that, is that, you know, you sort of spend too much time on deals that you think that you've got these two things right, right? And then over time, before you close the deal, you know, you sort of walk away because you've realized that it's not the right thing. And so I think speeding up the investment process so you don't waste time going to narrow when you're then missing on the width, right? That's something that all VCs, I think you have to get a lot better with time. And we grew the team, right? We were two for a long time. We're now 10, right? So I think growing the team and bringing in more expertise over the past five years has allowed us to get a lot better at that. But there's still definitely, you know, progress to be made. And I believe you've decided for Fund 2 to have a greater focus on Europe versus the US. Historically, Systemic has uh, played a global global role. Uh, why is that? Why Europe now? Um, so Fund 1 was 50-50 Europe, North America. And when I say Europe, it was in particular Ireland, UK. We did we have done very little on the continent so far, not for lack of trying. We believe that... Why is that as well? Why not France, Germany, Italy? We've not been able to find the right deals, right? It's, uh, it's interesting that I think most of us come from a more Anglo-Saxon upbringing, professional. And the culture the confidence is very different, right? And so in our place, I think if you do fintech and other things, it's very different, right? But in climate, we find it a lot harder to find the right deals. But, you know, it, things are changing, right? And Europe is advancing super fast on this front. So I'm very confident that we'll be able to do more. So what has changed now? And I think it's interesting how, you know, if you look at 2022, it's been such an incredible year, right? You know, I think until July, it looked like climate tech was insulated, right? By everything else mm-hmm. that's going on in tech. And then you, everybody disappeared in August and then comes September. And I think the winds change, right? Right? And climate got affected. And then all of a sudden, IRA came in, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the US. And I think IRA, to an extent, destroyed value in early stage US climate. And so there is now a flock interesting a flock of us Can you elaborate? well the valuations are frothy right there's a lot more value to be found in europe and yes the us market is a lot bigger and yes it's a lot easier right but it might be a better deal you know if you sort of get cheaper you good quality european companies and then help them to come go to the us right it's a bit opposite of what happened in the past and we do see right again you know yeah i've noticed in the past month that both us gps were very close to us gps and lps are really pushing hard into europe because they realize that they have a problem interesting so just to, to feed a bit more context, and I want to play devil's advocate on that point. The IRA, which is the US government passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the single largest investment in climate and energy in American history. To put things in perspective, I believe it's $369 billion that will be spent. It will in be a trillion because a lot, a lot of those are guarantees. So it will end up being a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. Well, I was going to put as, as context, 369 is roughly the annual GDP of Denmark. A trillion is more than probably most of the Nordics together and probably closer to the GDP of, of Spain. So it's insane as an amount. So you're you're saying that this will have an impact just inflating valuations in the US. But I could also argue that there's always been historically a lot of grants, spread money, non-dilutive capital in Europe, which has helped companies scale and really reach you know, different milestones in their development. Don't you think that this is going to enable certain technologies to scale and reach exit quicker? Mm, no. <laughs> 
Let me explain why. There's no RPAE or DARPA RPAE equivalent in Europe. We have Horizon 2020, but Horizon 2020 is essentially a machine to give money to corporates to do R&D. And then, you know, with a little 10% on the side to bring in, you know, in the consortium, a startup here and there. I think the European sort of risk aversion has obviously, I think it got, it's got a lot better, right? I think really over, over the last 10 years, there's been massive milestones. But Europe still doesn't have like a, an innovation setup that goes from fundamental research to scale the US have. Look, I, I, it makes me really sad, right, to see that the Europe is sort of missing a train after another, right? First, we lost the renewables mm-hmm. train. You know, we were we subsidized the drop of renewables costs between 2010 and 2020 for the rest of the world. The winner ended up being China. And I guess, yes, we got, you know, Siemens and Vestas, right, as a sort of two big unicorns on that side, but that was about it. I think the whole battery side has passed European shores as well. And we believe that there's now a massive biology revolution ongoing, right? And Europe is, again, completely missing the plot because they have these arcane regulations around GMO and all that, right? So, you know, I think it would be very disappointing if 10 years from now, Europe has lost the leadership on climate. But, you know, it's not a done deal because the US is pedaling really fast. And, and just coming back to the the idea that there is a dilution or, a, a, you know, overinflated valuations on, on US startups. Is that an actual problem for a VC and to invest in well, you have to be, I mean, you know, I always say, you know, the fact that we, and I think you're in the same boat, right? The fact that you're fundraising in 2022 and to deploy, you know, from 2022-23, right? That's a great place to be because you are buying at the low end of the valuations, right? Mm-hmm. Two, three years ago. In Europe. In, well, yeah, in Europe. Two, three years ago, fundraising was easier, but you were then deploying at the top of the valuations, right? And so I think in the US, they are they remain in that phase where, you know, we are seeing companies that are not particularly advanced, right? And the valuations are exactly what they were at the top of the market, right? In many, not all, but anything that touches energy, right? Carbon capture, to an extent, you know, natural solutions as well, because there's money being going into conservation as well. There's no value. So you have to be careful, right? You know, the entry point matters. It does. It's always, um, it's, it's always done it. I, I just uh, try to understand if the IRA will actually play against the U.S. market and favor Europe, which is your, your thesis. No, it won't because you have so much money in the U.S., right? And there's plenty of people who are recycling from, you know, old school fossil people into green and they're happy to pay any valuation. That's right. And that will continue. That will continue. I would argue that as European funds, we need to ship our portfolio companies to the U.S., right? To access U.S. I believe capital that markets. For the next couple of years, that's going to be the trend, which arguably in the past was the opposite, right? In Trump years, it was the opposite. You know, we were the first ever institutional investor in Zeravia. We helped them to come to Europe, right? They got like massive funding from the UK. They got like commercial relationships in, in the Nordics. That would be unthinkable today, right? So in a way, Europe was the beneficiary under Trump. And now it's really reversed really fast the other way. Yeah, I would definitely agree with this. And I would, I would like to, to, to zero in a few verticals just to get your, your take on, on what is sensical, what is nonsensical in the current venture world, especially in climate. Maybe before I cherry pick a, a few of them, what, what areas do you currently find most relevant to invest in and what are the no-goes? For you? Yeah, so we invest in four, you know, the thematically, we invest in four areas that link to systemic sort of networks and expertise. And these are sustainable food and materials, transport, climate analytics and intelligence, so the whole software side of things and fintech side of things. And then finally, climate restoration which is broader defined from biodiversity to carbon and methane, right? So this is our landscape. But within that, you have like 100 different subsectors. We feel incredibly bullish about biotech, right? You know, unlike most climate funds, we do a lot of biotech, climate biotech, right? And that touches food, but it also touches chemicals. And it also touches biodiversity, right? Our first investment from Fund 2 is a biodiversity company called Basecamp Research, which sort of 
it's very complicated. Essentially, it's uh, sourcing enzymes in nature to then sort of replace fossil fuel sites on the downstream, fossil fuel products with bioprocessing products on the downstream site. So we believe that that space is going to grow massively, right? Biology will change industrial systems to a level that is unrecognizable, not just industrial, also food and potentially carbon as well. So we spend a lot of time there. Again, if you look at value, you know, biotech has gone through a very deep winter in the last 12 to 18 months. And we believe that now is the time, you know, sort of to, to go big on that. So two people on in our investment team only do biotech. So we have a sort of very deep science view on that. We continue being very bullish on AI, right? We believe that we're just at the beginning of the potential of AI to create efficiency. And I guess efficiency equals decarbonization, right? To an extent in any industrial sector. Mm -hmm. There might also be, you know, we haven't cracked it yet, but this sort of advanced computing will have an effect, right? On carbon too. So we're sort of keeping an eye on that side as well. Mobility, we like the hard to bait side of things more than shared, right? So aviation, shipping, shipping in particular, right? There's massive regulatory change coming in 2023. So we've done an investment, but we'll do more around shipping, but also tracking and sort of uh, more sort of special vehicles. That side we like a lot. Things that where we've cooled compared to a year ago are definitely carbon removal. We can go deeper into why. We've cooled on shared mobility. You know, again, we can go deeper into why. And fintech, right? For obvious reasons. But again, there is, and under fintech, I put in carbon accounting, right? And all, and all that. I think you will notice that we don't invest into energy, right? Strict energy. So batteries, primary energy production, we don't do that, right? But obviously everything else touches upon energy. So you have to understand electrification really well. Yes, indeed. So you focus on certain aspects of energy, you know, we can talk about hydrogen. Let's let's pick hydrogen. What's your take on hydrogen? Do you think that can scale? Do you think that's the next revolution or is it too niche? No. It's definitely not a revolution. I think hydrogen is an amazing way to electrify what cannot be directly electrified, which is a niche. I think that hydrogen today has become to a large extent an excuse for the oil and gas people, right? To, you know, mm -hmm. to say, oh, you know, I've been doing gas for all these years. I now have hydrogen. I can keep doing the same business I've done in the past, right? And the government is going to pay me for the price difference. I don't think that makes any sense. You know, I think using hydrogen for heating, using hydrogen for cars, using hydrogen for trains and trucks, nonsense, right? Hydrogen is only applicable for things that are not directly electrifiable, i.e. very high energy heat in parts of industry, such as steel and parts of aviation, which is why we invested in Zeravia. Potentially some very long-term tracks, you know, not in Europe, maybe in the US, those sort of mega tracks that go very for a big distance. And that's about it, right? Then though, where I am much more bullish about is the hydrogen derivatives. You know, mm -hmm. I think that 10 years, 15 years from now, you're going to have hundreds of gigawatts of offshore wind and solar, right, in off-grid projects, in coastal projects, you know, deserts around the world, Australia, Western Africa, South, you know, Patagonia, right, those places, possibly the US. And those are going to be churning power in, into hydrogen, into something, ammonia, right, in, if you have iron, it could be in the form of AGI, right, and other derivatives that I am very bullish about. But then hydrogen becomes a, you know, a sort of mid-manufacturing processing it's thing. Exactly. It's not direct utilization of hydrogen. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a fair point. We do not, let's pick Europe, for example, we don't have the capacity to deploy wind at enormous scale as we would in, in Africa, for example. So some uh, say that in the future, we might have production capacity in Africa 
turn the electricity into a derivative of hydrogen oh, yeah, ammonia. Yeah. I, I am on the board of, either... of a company that does that, not as an investor, like as a friend. They have a 40,000 megawatt project in Mauritania, right? That's bigger than the whole renewable installed capacity of Northwest Europe. Each of these projects is as big as, you know, two Slovenias, you know, <laughs> it's, these are <laughs> massive, but this stuff is going to happen. And that will be the business of the surviving oil and gas companies in 10 years. So we need to liquefy electricity in yes. a way. You know, we, don't, we, don't, we can store exactly. electrons, so we liquefy it. Is it going to be piped to Europe or using methane, you know, enormous container ships, and it will be carried through boats? It will be carried through boats, whether it's ammonia, hydrogen, methanol, who knows, but it will be carried through boats, right? Because then once you are off-grid, you essentially have a similar risk profile to offshore oil and gas EMP which is something that we've known for a long time and it's very well understood from a legal perspective, a lot less riskier than being attached to the grid in countries where typically demographics are going, you know, ballistic. You know, Mm -hmm. this scary statistic that 75% of the children born between 2020 and 2070 will be in Africa, right? (laughs) It's, uh, you know, so I I think being off-grid protects you from all sorts of perspectives. Do you think ships will run on hydrogen? No. Or steal fossil fuels? Ships. I think it's going to go to... A mix of electric and ammonia. That would be my guess. Maybe I'm completely wrong. So hybrid. No, well, so shorter, we'll short, short hole, short hole will go to electric. I mean, the ferries in Norway are already electrifying, right? And then long hole will go to ammonia. That would be my guess. But, you know, who knows? Hydrogen has a density issue. So you'd need very big ships to run on hydrogen. What about direct air capture? Love to double click on, on carbon removal, particularly... DAC. Yes. Direct air capture. DAC has a problem, which is... Too early or no future? Mm, I think DAC has the problem, which is the law of thermodynamics, right? The energy consumption is just too large. There's so much money being pumped into DAC in the US in particular. So something will come out of it. I don't believe that it's going to be as big as people think it will be. I'm much more bullish on the oceans, right? The density of CO2 in the oceans is 150 times larger than in the air. But it has an issue of what you then do. You know, I'm not a huge believer in geological storage of CO2. You know, we've wasted tens of billions on that for the past 20 years and it has gone nowhere. So you need to find something to do with that CO2. And that's, again, when you take it away from the sea, same as from the air, right? What would you do with that? I also think that we have nowhere near exhausted the potential of capturing CO2 by using photosynthesis, which Mother Nature gave us, right? And it's very energy efficient. Planting trees in particular? No, that's not permanent. Things like charm, you know, one of our fund one investments with charm industrial right that's the kind of stuff no no biomass so they look at they take harvested biomass and then either inject it back into unused wells across the u.s or now sort of they're trying to sort of via syngas go into the iron into the steel process You know, there's other projects out there that use biomass, which that's for us a sweet spot, right? So we're looking at two, three investments in that space. But I think, you know, the scarce green electrons we have in the Western world cannot be wasted into that. It doesn't make any sense, right? In the world where you're going to have, you know, thousands of gigawatts in coastal deserts around the world, then maybe that makes sense, right? But we are so far from that mm-hmm. world, right? And we should be using the so still scarce because it's only 5% of global electricity comes from renewables, right? It's still tiny. So we should be using those scarce resources where they really matter which is definitely not that. And you come from the world of commodities. You've, um, you know, spent a, a fair lot of time in, in methane in particular. So can you speak about methane, the applications?
applications where you're bullish on? Mm. I wish we could find the company. You know, we've been looking really hard, which is why we spun out two things in methane from Systemic, Capterio and MIQ. So methane is 25% of the problem in global warming, right? It's, uh, you know, there's this famous saying that CO2 is an arterial condition and then your heart attack is methane. You have to solve it first, but there's no attention really going that much to methane. A third is oil and gas, a third is food, a third is natural food and uh, uh, sort of land use, and a third is natural. The natural bit is the scariest, right? Because as the permafrost melts, then those bacteria get alive again, and then they start producing methane again. We've looked at a ton of businesses, especially in oil and gas around monitoring. There's issues around scalability, some often issues around science. So that's why we launched MIQ, which is still an NGO, but it will one day, I think, become a for-profit, which is, we launched it two years ago, and it's essentially using a very precise MRV, and it's now certifying 20% of US gas production already. Europe has different issues now, so it will not come to Europe for a while. Europe is on the hunt for any molecule, no matter how dirty. But when methane losses from oil and gas are above 3%, you are essentially worse than coal. And there's plenty of gas supply chains around the world that have losses of 10% or more, right? So mm-hmm. this whole beautiful story that we've been told that, you know, gas is a third cheaper, sorry, cheaper, cleaner than coal is just a nice story. It doesn't make any sense. Should we use satellite imaging to detect those leakage? Doesn't really work. And try to fix that first. Doesn't really work. Satellites at best will help you to detect 20-30% of the leakage. You then have sensors, but sensors have an issue when there's wind and often there's big wind right in those facilities. So you need more sort of spectroscopy. We've looked at that stuff. Aerial, but aerial is very expensive and sort of you do it one off. It's not It's not continuous. Using drones? Or flights, right? There's companies in the US that uh, you, you charter a flight and then you sort of do a flyover, but then it's a one-off, right? It won't mm-hmm. be continuous. Yeah, look, it's a, spa- it's a space we monitor incredibly closely via MIQ as well. I still sit on the board of MIQ, so, you know, we always have technology reviews, but um, we're not quite there yet. On land and use, land use, woof, right? Land, land use, sure, if, you know, if everybody turned away from beef, we'd solve a big problem. But you also mm-hmm. need to solve the issue of rice, which is more behavioral, right? Um, that's not really a technology problem. And then the holy grail is to find a way to capture CO2, sorry, capture methane from the air. And because the density is, you know, a fraction of CO2, which is already tiny, then it's been really hard. But there's stuff out there, right? Uh, it's just very slow. I also want to take an opportunity to look at your angle on a bit of a contrarian topic, the role of the Gulf. The Middle East. You spend a lot of time in Dubai, you know the specificities of the region. In your view, you think the Gulf is part of the solution, not just part of the problem. Yes. So did you elaborate? I'm you know, I'm obviously biased. My first job was in Damascus, so you know, I learned Arabic and it's a culture that I'm incredibly passionate about. And we then spent five years in Dubai with my husband, so it's a space that we've we know well. But I was in Saudi two weeks ago, and what has happened in the last five years is like unimaginable, right? 10 million women entering the workforce. It's a mm-hmm. massive social revolution that is completely missed by the Western media. Of, they, can they can drive, they can go around they without the buyer, right? It looks more like Iran than it used. I mean, yeah, sure. If Iran, if at some point, Iran is going to blow up as well, and then it's going to be amazing because it will be even more yeah. educated workforce coming in. And that coincides with, you know, three, you know, when, when we moved to the Middle East, it was in 2010, and that was after the the financial crisis. So there was money, you know, but now it's not just money. It's also the social revolution and Saudi is the biggest population mm-hmm. area there. And it's the green transition, right? Which people are not all, but people are taken seriously and they are blessed with incredible solar radiation. You know, they can go baseload on renewables if they want to, which we in Europe, we can dream of in winter. Mm-hmm. They could do all these like, you know, power to X, they're leading on that. You know, the first plant is on power to X is going to be Neom. 
you know, Neom, is it ever going to happen? Who knows? It's a bit crazy, but, you know, still, right? There's a ton of ambition there. And they're hosting COP next year, right? And so there is, it, COP is going to be, COP 28, yeah, COP 20 is going to be in Abu Dhabi. And so I'm incredibly bullish about that region for the next 10 years. I forgot there's another one, huge food, right? They have been using mm-hmm. groundwater for the past 30 years. They're running out of groundwater and they can't rely on 100% imports as they have been doing for in several countries. So there is, they've sound peace with Israel recently, right? So there's a whole ACTEC movement that is really entering the region. Lots of efforts, you know, they were talking about how to make crops from salted water, right? They're trying to engineer plants, right? Half of the desalination capacity of the world is in the Middle East, right? You could do so much stuff around there, of, you know, carbon capture, in particular, Israel. Israel too. I think people overlook that trend and the fact that the, they're tying up, you know, diplomatically, it's also a, an exchange of technology and desalination is part of it. Yeah, that. agreed. But you know that in the US, there's not a single desalination plant. They just can't get the approvals. How many are there in Israel? Israel will have three, I guess. But then, you know, between the Gulf, you know, there are so many more, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I always get a bit sick and tired of this like Western media hostility towards the Middle East, mm-hmm. right? Because it is, they will transition, and I think they will transition in a big time and people don't realize, you know, in Riyadh, there's like there's this like green Riyadh thing. They're planting trees everywhere, right? So, we, and you could say, yeah, who cares? It's just trees, right? But there, it's not just like a leaf, fig leaf. I think people are taking that a lot more seriously than we assume. I, I just can't help but think, and I'm sorry, I'm going to take the contrary, you know, point of view here to think that the core business model of the Gulf, especially Saudi, has been to extract fossil fuels. So why would they change it? as long as it continues to be the cash cow. It will be a cash cow for at least another 30 years, but it will be a shrinking market, right? They're not the biggest producer in the world anymore. The US is bigger than them and mm-hmm. it will be a shrinking market, right? So, you know, throughout the last 20 years, you know, the spare capacity of oil has been around two, three million barrels, right? That's in a, in a 80, 90 million barrels a day market. The moment when that spare capacity goes to four or five because of EVs and renewables and everything, the price of oil will crash, right? It's as simple as that. So they will have to, but it's a 30 year, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, right? It's a 30-year trend. Do you think the international community should just stand up and, and try to prevent that from happening? If they exploit the reserves over the next 30, maybe 30 years, we're doomed. Whatever we do in Europe and all our beautiful funds, it just uh, it's a bit of a zero-sum game. I don't think the problem is Saudi. Right? You know, again, I'm not, I'm not defending them, right? But they've had fields for a long time and it's the cheapest. The problem is what we should ban is new fields, Right, because the idea that people are now, because of the energy crisis, there's money again going into new fields, that is crazy, right? Because then we're going to be left with those assets for many, many decades to come. I think the stuff that is already there, you know, let it die, right, over time, but doing new things. And yeah, I guess the situation we are in is not really helping. In the short term, I think medium term, it's going to accelerate the transition because now climate and energy security go hand in hand. And that wasn't the case until two years ago. Uh, did you did you see this article? Are you aware of the, the phenomenon that today we've extracted enough fossil fuels that are living in reserves in the US, in Europe, in the Middle East that are enough, sufficient, if we were to burn those, those reserves to get us to two degrees warmer. Yeah. So I, I just can't help but think that if they continue extracting and adding up to those reserves, we're fucked. Yeah, no, but they, they will so demand... rather them to demand, switch Demand, quicker. you know, no, but no Western government can tell them to switch, right? We need to make sure that the cost curves come down faster so that demand dries up. 
right? And that, you know, we have in July, I think global sales of EVs have gone above 10% new cars, right? That is way faster. You know, if you look at the EIA, they thought we would get to 10% in 2030, right? So we are into a series of hockey curves, right? And I think what I find so exciting about our space is that for the past 30 years, VC 20, right? 30 actually, for the past, no, the VC was really about the declining Moore's law. That was it, right? And so it was all around sort of, Mm-hmm. And now that continues, but then you also have the genomics revolution, you know, have power prices that are sort of crashing and uh, green power prices crashing and sort of bringing all the benefits with that. And I think a lot of these technologies are converging and climate tech is at the very center of that, right? Which makes it so exciting. Absolutely. Irena, we've been uh, talking for more than 35 minutes. I wish I could uh, carry on for hours. I would love to just take the next couple of minutes to talk, jump into our rapid fire round. So the concept is I will give you two options, option A and option B, and you give me in a, in a short manner your answer, your preferred option. The first question is, uh, zooming in systemics model, do you think the quality of services is more important than the quality of origination to drive multiples as a VC fund? No, origination comes first. Sourcing is the most important one. I would agree with that. Contrarian versus consensus decisions. Looking back, which bet paid the biggest dividend so far? Always contrarian. Uh, I've been a contrarian throughout my life (laughs) and I love that. Pretty much many of the investments we've done you know, we're contrary. When we invested in Zero Avia, people thought that aviation, hydrogen aviation was nuts. We invested in Jupiter Intelligence when at the peak of COVID, when everything, money was drying. We invested in Nature Metrics and Biobase Camp when people think that biodiversity is like, you know, tree huggers thing for NGOs. And I could go on and on. We've been very good at staying away from areas where which become mainstream. So we mm-hmm. haven't touched carbon accounting. We haven't touched you know, batteries, we haven't touched carbon offsets, right? All that stuff. And we will very much continue doing that. Now, looking at a culture of a VC fund, are you more in favor of remote first or in-person first? Hmm. What seems to work best? I think here the Goldman in me comes out in person. (laughs) In person really matters. I think once you have a team that has worked together for many years, you could go remote, but we haven't had that luxury, right? We've been building a team for the past five years and nothing replaces being in person. So we are, you know, unless we travel, we are always in the office for three days a week, at least three days a week. So you're being contrarian here yes. as well. And the day that the uh, mainstream goes back to in person, you will go back to remote. <laughs> Look, remote, remote works and- if... If, you know, if, again, if you've known each other for a very long time, but again, you know, as a VC, would you invest, you know, in, we did it in COVID, right? We all done it, but it's not nice to invest in a company when you haven't met them in person, right? It's such I a would agree people's business, right? So it's very hard to remove that aspect. 100%. Uh, next question is, do you think looking at the, you know, playing a game of prediction in a climate tech space, are you, are we looking at a winner take all climate funds the same way we've seen for previous generalist funds that are just growing in AUM and then you have a handful of them that are dominating the space or rather a multiplication with hundreds of climate tech funds in Europe. Yeah. What would be better suited to address this climate change mm. problem? There was a great article in Bloomberg about that yesterday, which I recommend, which was a bit go- about going broader and narrower in climate tech. So I think you will have big funds, but the big funds are going to be especially late stage, you know, the generations, the beyond net zeros of the world, which don't really do VC, right? They go much later. I think in our space, if you want, we are, we consider ourselves like a multi-specialist, but we can be multi-specialist because we've got like 400 consultants on the back, you know, with research and otherwise I think we're going towards narrowing. But there will always be that trend where the mega funds say, okay, I'm going to do 15% of my allocation is going to go to climate. Those are not climate tech funds, right? But mm-hmm. because they have so many AUMs, then they end up being huge in the way they deploy capital. 
They're a bit uh, sparkling their portfolio with a bit yeah, of Yeah, but often, you know, often you look at what they're doing and you're like, that doesn't make any sense, right? They're just riding uh-huh. overvalued companies into into sectors that have big issues, right? So there is value in being incredibly knowledgeable about the sort of the system issue of climate because it's very complex. Indeed. I'd also agree with this. And final question, government funding versus oil and gas funding. What would you rather take as a fund? Oh, government, for sure. (laughs) We have been very careful not to take either government, you know, no government, no corporates. You know, we don't, but if I had to choose, I would choose government. So none of the above. None of the above, (laughs) no, because both come with issues. And ties and certain LP directions and you don't want any of that to influence your portfolio. No, that's right. But, you know, there are some parts of government where which you can work with, uh, whereas I think oil and gas really dilutes your authenticity and in climate authenticity really comes first. I would concur. Brand value is the people's business. You need to stand on, you know, strong on your values and make it shine. Amazing. Thanks so much, uh, uh, Irena, for, for this interview. And if you have to leave our audience with anything, you know, to conclude... People that want to work for a great climate tech startup or even a great climate tech fund, where would you advise them to to start? Build a network, right? It always starts there. You know, think about who are the two, three people in your network that know something about climate and ask each of them to introduce you to the next three and right, then spend six to nine months or 12 months figuring out what this is and find your space in it, right? I've always been a very cautious decision maker, right? And so I think you have to be cautious and not, you know, sort of quickly jump into something, but take your time because climate is becoming more and more diversified, right? There's lots of different roles within climate. It's not just VC and startup, right? There's many other things you could do. And I think you really want to choose a place where you're going to have, you know, your 200% passion that can come out because that's in the end of the day what makes a fulfilling life. Thank you so much, Irena, for this great conversation, for your energy. I'm grateful to have you here. And to all of you guys, thanks for tuning in. Thank you, Jan. Have a very nice day. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A climate tech VC. To learn more about Clementum Capital, apply for funding or become an LP, visit clementum.com.